Welcome to Firefighting in Canada, the podcast. This episode is sponsored by L3 Harris. With over 50 years of Canadian innovation, the new XL Extreme Radio was designed by firefighters, built for firefighters. You've tuned in for compelling conversation on hot topics impacting Canada's fire service. From Hope, BC, I'm Fire Chief Tom DeSorcy. Fire safety, fire prevention, uh, it comes in many forms as, uh, as do the tools to, uh, to protect our communities. Um, we are talking today about the National Indigenous Fire Safety Council project and uh, reading from their website. This is the result of a, of a new Indigenous developed framework designed to support Indigenous communities in the development of their internal capacity to improve community safety and resiliency. The NIFSC project is Indigenous-inspired, designed, and led in collaboration with regional and national Indigenous communities, organizations, and leaders. And one of those leaders uh, joins us today on the podcast. It's a pleasure to introduce Len Garris. Len, thank you very much uh, for, for taking the time today to talk to us. Hey, Tom, it's always a pleasure. Those of us in British Columbia know... Uh, know of you and your distinguished career in the uh, in public service and the fire service maybe give us a little background for the national audience to uh, to talk about who Len Garris is and uh, and your and your I guess your 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 history in fire for example oh well <laughs> I, I appreciate that um, uh, like you I've been at it for a long time probably about 35 years uh, started as a volunteer and was fortunate to work at the Justice Institute of British Columbia in the late 80s and uh, became the first uh, fire chief in the District of Pitt Meadows in, uh, in, in the early 1990s. And then mid 1990s, I went to Surrey as an assistant chief. And uh, in 2001, I was appointed as their fire chief and I retired as their fire, city's fire chief in 2019. And uh, along the way, I've been associated with the uh, University of the Fraser Valley John Jay uh, School of Criminology and Criminal Justice in New York, uh, UBC, SFU, et cetera, uh, with various different affiliations. So my uh, history has always been uh, focusing on evidence-based decision-making and uh, uh, focusing on trying to use data to help improve uh, lives of British Columbians uh, in my other career and, and now for Canadians. Uh, the National Indigenous Fire Safety Council approached me in February of 2020 and asked me if I would serve as their director of research, which I uh, agreed to uh, based on the enormous challenges that they have ahead of them and, and the challenges about administrating and focusing on uh, nearly 700 communities in Canada uh, basically don't have any retrospective data uh, in order to help them uh, make their fire safety decisions. So a little bit about the program, it was set up, uh, it's a three year, it's a project, it's deemed as a project, it has three years of funding uh, and it's funded by uh, uh, the Indigenous Services Canada or the Canadian government. And it's just uh, shy of $10 million over three years. And it's designed to create, develop, and deliver nearly 80 programs and services on First Nations communities in Canada. And um, uh, going forward, my job is to create, develop, uh, curate uh, research agendas to help support uh, program uh, services and delivery. 
getting into this project, I mean, did you have expectations as to how this would look and, and have those expectations changed in the, in, since you've been involved? Oh, of course. In the, in the early days, it was uh, a question about what should research be. And that was a, a question of pondering. So in order to get to the answer to that, the, the, it was about, okay, well, what is the problem? And uh, in order to get there, as I just had mentioned, uh, or maybe I didn't, but the previous 10 years, there hasn't been any consistent or uh, uh, data in terms of retrospective occurrences on First Nations communities in Canada. It didn't exist. It doesn't exist. And the organization currently right now is working towards uh, creating a, uh, a depository or collection of data uh, so that it can get some fire history under its belt so that it can make some more uh, refined uh, decisions. So that was my first challenge is to try and help guide the organization for programs and services without any retrospective uh, information. And that's part of where this particular topic that we're gonna talk about came from is to trying to get to the, what is happening and how severe is it? And how does it compare with the rest of the Canadian population? And so we had commissioned Statistics Canada in order to help us answer that question. And that's how we got there. And we're not, by no means, we're not finished with uh, continuing to ask the questions around mortality. But leading up to that, what we did was, is we took census data and we used a, a, an approach that has been done in, elsewhere in Canada, the United States and Europe using social data. We do have census data uh, for every community in, uh, uh, in Canada, but also on First Nations communities. So in other words, we know the age of the population, we know the income levels. Uh, it's kind of like a deprivation index, but we also know housing conditions, and we also know crowding, what crowding looked like. So with those characteristics, we actually brought them together and we created a risk matrix of uh, at-risk communities or, or riskier communities based on uh, demography and housing conditions and crowding. And we use that as a guidepost for us to focus our programming. So that was our first approach to uh, using some data that already exists in uh, uh, within, within Statistics Canada and within the census data uh, to help us uh, inform decision-making about which communities to go to first and then the second part of that was looking at mortality and morbidity uh, and using uh, uh, the data holdings that the Canadian government has in vital statistics and in their hospitalization records in order to link that to fire rated history and saying, okay, what does that look like on First Nations communities in Canada by province and by the, by the whole of Canada? And what do the hospitalization look like? associated with fires and burns, et cetera. So that's how we got at this particular uh, study and what those uh, uh, what the approach was in order to inform the organization to say, here's where you need to go, here's where you need to be uh, focused on, and here's where it's happening more frequently than others. And that's what this report basically uh, served as. You, you took a look basically at where we, where we were, where they, where everyone was, where the data was, where the data uh, is going to, uh, what what surprised you the most from gathering the historical data? 
Well, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to say that I'm not surprised because leading up to this, I found pockets of research that compared First Nations communities and the not, uh, or say Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities in Canada uh, over the last, say, 20 years. So the first one that I was able to find was done in British Columbia, and it was uh, a time period between 1990 and 2001. And at that time, they said that if you were Indigenous in British Columbia, you were nine times, 9.4 times more likely to die in a fire than uh, a non-Indigenous British Columbia. So, and then CMHC did a study in 2014, and it was hard to get to the basis of where their data came from and how broad it was, but they made a statement of 10.4 times more likely to die if you were Indigenous than if you were non-Indigenous. And so, uh, and then there was a further study in 2017, and that was again in British Columbia, and that had dropped to about, uh, I think it was around four times greater. So it looked like there was some improvements. So, but this, this study was the first time of a national basis that looked at all of, all of Canada, including the territories and including the three groups, whether you were First Nations, whether you were Métis or whether you were Inuit, and it compared it with non-Indigenous uh, deaths in Canada. And we'll talk about the deaths first. So when, I, when you asked me if I was surprised, uh, I, I knew that it was gonna be overrepresented, but I didn't know to the degree so in other words, if you were indigenous person in Canada, and this is the, the highlights of the study, if you were an indigenous person in Canada, you're five times more likely to die in a fire if you're indigenous and non-indigenous, and that's the three groups put together. And if you're on reserve, you're living on a reserve, that number climbs to 10 times more likely to die in a fire if you're indigenous versus non-indigenous. And if you're Inuit, you're 17 times more likely to die in a fire than a non-Indigenous person in Canada. So the, the numbers are, are incredibly high and, and, and of major concern. So we know, we know what's happening now, uh, and we know where it's happening generally. And as you, if you scour the report, you'll see that in some provinces, like for example, British Columbia, they didn't give us a rate of, of compared to uh, indigenous and non-indigenous and the reason because the numbers are too low for reporting so that's actually a good thing and that was also identified in uh, the maritimes as well but of course alberta uh, which was probably the highest representation of uh, fatalities on reserve was like 15 times higher and so it starts to show us where these where it's occurring and then because of course the numbers, we have to be careful about uh, identification of, of privacy. So therefore, you know, anything below five, I think it is, that's, it gets suppressed and it is not reportable. So, um, so it, it becomes very helpful to say, you know, this is a, this is a problem. We're not, uh, and it's been a problem if we go I'll reel it all the way back for the last 20 years, we know that this is, this is likely been the rates for the last 20 years in Canada, and, and despite you know I'm not I'm not uh, challenging the strategy uh, that's taking place prior to it, but what I'm saying is is that you know the installation of fire departments and the apparatus etc. 
you know, those are very, very important. Um, but you know, in your business, and uh, it's very difficult to be there at the time of the fire and to rescue somebody if because of response times and alerting, et cetera. And it just doesn't seem to have had an impact on deaths and injuries uh, across Canada, despite almost half of the communities that I mentioned out of the 700 that actually have a fire department listed and operating. So we need to get between that. So in other words, we need to start mirroring some culturally sensitive programs and services, which is, which is happening and apply those to the communities that are in most need to try and start to change behaviors. Like for example, smoke alarm attainment, uh, uh, learn not to burn for, uh, for, uh, for folks, cooking related fires, et cetera, et cetera. And we're still hypothesizing that those are the actual causes because we don't know the why. So getting to the why, the next thing that we're hoping to be able to do is secure funding for uh, uh, drilling into the coroner's and medical examiner's database of Canada and start focusing on the why. Because within those coroners where there's unnatural deaths that occur, information that is likely uh, garnered and will be reportable in terms of the circumstances. So in other words, was the individual, what was the age of the individual? Were they over 65 or they under five, which you and I know are tend, tend to be uh, more risky. Uh, but was it cooking related fire? Was the person smoking at the time? Were they asleep at time? Was alcohol or drugs involved? All those types of things are gonna be really informative and instructive for our programs and services. So we're hoping to be able to bring that next portion into the work. And uh, uh, by the way, we're hoping to be able to do a, a deeper dive in the non-Indigenous communities of Canada for that information, because I think it'll be valuable to all fire chiefs in Canada to understand what those circumstances are for the deaths and what was going on for us to create more precision on our approaches to death and injuries uh, in Canadian communities whether they're Indigenous or not Indigenous. Speak to the lack of, of data. You know, you talked, obviously there's a lot of information that you've given, but the lack of reporting uh, that has gone on in, in Indigenous and in non-Indigenous in Canada, it, it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty, pretty, you know, it's been widespread. Uh, am I wrong? Well, it's, there's, there's two parts to that. You're right. There's a, you know, it's, it's like the forest if a tree falls and nobody hears it, you, you don't know what happened. So you're just, we're assuming that there's a lot of information that just doesn't get reported. And, and, and that is certainly a, a, a striking example on First Nations communities because uh, virtually nothing exists um, for that information. But in terms of, you know, if I put my other hat on in my other career, when I was part of the team that curated the national fire incident database, you know, we were quite concerned about the potential of underreporting, but even the quality of reporting, there's so many fields that are left empty. Like for example, uh, what comes to mind was a nearly 50% of the fatalities that were reported in Canada uh, uh, in that database, the age was not known. And I'm not sure how that's possible that you can't simply you know, at the time, determine what the age of the uh, person that died in the fire was. And, and I think that's, you know, that's a concern. I don't want to poke, uh, poke at individuals, but it just seems that the quality of data could be greatly improved. And, and, and the lack of, of data 
makes it difficult for us to make good decisions or to create arguments for resources or programming, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, I, I, especially now, you know, anecdotally, we're hearing that because of COVID and the pressures on people being at home more often, we're seeing death and injuries go up in our industry, but we're not able to quantify that. And that's, well, we don't have any real-time reporting. Ontario has suggested that it's up 35%. Uh, I'm not sure what it's like in British Columbia, Alberta, or other places, but my sense is that it's probably considerably higher. So this information, whether it's you know uh, for Indigenous communities or Indigenous people or non-Indigenous people, is very important. So improving data collection is part of the goal of the project as well. And I see on the website, you know, there is the opportunities for reporting of fires, reporting of incidents. Uh, is is how is that going to affect future data? How and how's the word going to get out that folks can actually input data into the into the system? Well, we have we stood that up several months ago, and uh, we've been uh, infiltrating uh, our networks as best we can to uh, ensure that those uh, data collection uh, means are available for all communities. We have, uh, uh, we have support staff that are, you know, scouring the news and the media, looking for events that are on First Nations communities, then reach out to those communities and, and encourage them to report. It's, it's a simple reporting system that we've created. It, it may be not quite as extensive as uh, what the standard system is, across Canada, but it's uh, what we believe to be the vital aspects of reporting. And that's been made available. And, you know, our, we, we know there's a large number of our uh, uh, non-Indigenous uh, communities that are protecting Indigenous communities. And if they are able to uh, help with us for our reporting, that would be great because we do need information. We do need data to help support our programs and services. We need to know what is happening and we also need to know why it's happening and to whom so that we can improve our services. And, uh, and, and that's our focus. Beyond the importance of life and public safety, uh, data certainly has a lot of merit moving forward when it comes to funding and, and, and fire services and equipment. That, is that part of the project as well to help improve those, uh, those aspects in the communities? Well, absolutely. You know, there's, uh, as I mentioned, there's a lot of haves, you know, nearly half of the communities in Canada have some sort of uh, services or apparatus on the ground. The other half does not. And so, um, you know, that's an important part of the system. You know, I look at it as a system. You know, you need a well-established fire department. You need fire prevention and fire safety programs. Uh, you need working smoke alarms. Uh, in some cases, you need sprinklers uh, for different types of occupancies. One might argue that all buildings should be sprinklered. I've certainly been an advocate of that for my entire career. If you look on our website, you'll see that we've created some economic models uh, uh, that you can use in order to make those decisions. For example, you know you can assess what is the risk in a community if I have a fire department. What is what can I anticipate in terms of that? death rates per 1,000 fires. If I install smoke alarms, what can I expect? Well, the death rates or the casualty rates will drop in half. And what if I include a sprinkler system on top of a working smoke alarm, on top of a fire department, 
well, you can expect that your casualty rates will drop by nearly 80%. And so we're creating these tools so communities can make these decisions, band and council, that's who the authorities are, and they can design their communities uh, with fire safety in mind. And you know, I'm really mindful that uh, the other thing that hasn't occurred on First Nations communities, at least in the last 20 years that I can see, is they haven't had the types of, of, of access to programs and services that are on the soft side, despite the fact that we got fire departments happening and, and we got really dedicated individuals, mostly volunteers that are providing services in their communities, but we haven't been able to afford the influence of fire safety education, you know, in their in their schooling and, and in their homes, uh, working smoke alarms, et cetera, are all vitally important, as you know, in order to get those good positive outcomes. And those have not been structured well. And this program is looking at both the soft and the hard side of delivery of services. And it's a huge, you know, it's a huge hill to climb, right? We're talking about 700 communities displaced entirely across Canada, Northwest Territories, Yukon, and the challenges that we have. We also have challenges around our Métis communities, which are somewhat living outside of the reserve areas, but are embedded within uh, uh, Canadian communities. And they are, as I had pointed out, two times more likely to die. So, you know, there's, there's another area there that we can find these people in their communities and we can focus on them and they are at risk. And I just think we can do a much better job as an industry. The numbers don't lie. And, you know, I think a project like this, you said this is a three-year project, but one can't help but think this needs to go beyond three years. Tom, you're absolutely right. In my experience, and you know, which is in the city of Surrey, and I was fortunate to be able to initiate a program in, it took me three years to figure out what the problem was. It took another five years to implement uh, a home safe initiative. And then it had to curate over, over another four or five years to see the results. So it's the long game. And we're talking about starting from zero and changing behaviors and, and influencing uh, a, a culture of, of uh, fire safety in homes. And it's going to take time and effort. And I think this first three years is going to be a good demonstration project. And, and of course, the organization hopes that we'll receive uh, long-term funding so that it can continue with uh, this type of an approach. And, and I believe they deserve it. You know, as, as the rest of Canadian communities have some sort of access to this type of program and services through its fire services, through its health departments, and through other means, whereas this community does not. And, and that's what is going to be different about this. Uh, I'm convinced it will be successful, but we all need to be patient. And, you know, as fire services, we need to come together and we need to support each other. This group, you know, by the numbers, is incredibly more at risk than the rest of Canadians. And I'm not suggesting that we, uh, we take our foot off the gas for the rest of Canadians, but at a minimum, we should expect that the rates on First Nations communities should mirror non-Indigenous communities in terms of the deaths and injuries that are occurring. It's, it's worth a look through the website, indigenousfiresafety.ca. 
Uh, it's an incredible project. Uh, there are a lot of uh, resources on that website, and I, I, I challenge people to go and have a have a look at it. I think it's worth worthwhile. Well done. Len Garris is the Director of Research for the National Indigenous Fire Safety Council Project, and uh, thank you uh, for your time. I really, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Len. No worries, Tom. Take care. Thank you for joining Firefighting in Canada, the podcast, brought to you by L3 Harris. Visit firefightingincanada.com for more episodes.